Well, good morning. My name is Tony Anderson. I have the privilege of serving on staff here at the chapel as the pastor of counseling, executive pastor. And it's my privilege to be able to uh, be with you this morning to teach while Doug and his family are getting a little pre-Thanksgiving vacation in. Um, I don't know about you, but this year has been a hard year. Would you agree? I can look at your faces or not and agree, see that we have some similarities. Actually, the sermon you're about to hear this morning, I have been preaching to myself for the past six months. And so when Doug said, hey, would you be able to teach? I go, yeah, I've already got one. I've been rehearsing it in my mind for about six months now. As we think back about the 2020, we think about COVID and how difficult it's been in the trials. I think back to March, I think when we remember the 15 days to flatten the curve, you know, we're gonna just shelter in place for 15 days flatten the curve. I don't know about you, but there's just about nothing I wouldn't do for 15 days right now if we could be on the other side of COVID. I think about the trials. These are just personal trials. We've had plans canceled. Um, Haven't been able to see family. My mother who is, well, no, she's watching online. I won't tell you how old she is, but she's older. Uh, She hasn't been able to hug her grandchildren or her great-grandchildren in almost nine months. Hugging me is not a big loss for her but hasn't been able to hug her children or her grandchildren. I think about some, some of the other trials that um, just the decision-making we as elders have to do every week. What are we going to do this time? What are we going to do now that with new data? It's been hard. Can, and I, can I tell you, COVID has divided the church. For the most part, it hasn't been divisive, but it has divided the church. We have some in a camp that says, why are we even coming back yet? And others that says, why are we putting any restrictions at all? And so we have to balance those things. I think through about um, some of you, what you've had to do. Some of you all of a sudden became homeschooling parents. Never signed up for that, did you? We also have students who've lost graduations, once in a lifetime situations, uh, sports seasons that they'll never get back. And for some reason in my mind, I always thought January 1 is some magic date But here we are approaching January 1, and we still don't know how this is going to play out. Already things that I had planned or would have participated in in 2021 have um, been canceled or gone online. How many of y'all really enjoy those Zoom meetings, right? With poor connections and everything? Yeah. But as I think about this, those aren't all the trials. I know we've had quite a share of funerals in our body this year. And some of them, someone has lost love, loved ones after lengthy illnesses. Some of them have lost them unexpectedly. And then you throw in COVID and the way we grieve has changed. Who can participate? I know it's been hard for many people. People have some, I know, uh, friends who have illnesses that will go on. You know, there's no cure, no remedy. Some of them, they don't even know the cause and they're struggling with that. So it has been difficult. And also, I think about the counseling ministry We have, at the end of October, we already had 280 requests for counseling from CFC in the community. That is by far the largest number we've ever had. We're on pace to be well over 330 by the end of the year. And just listen to this. 58% of those people say they're struggling with anxiety. 45% anger, 40% fear, 38% depression, 34% loneliness, 29% said decision-making. I just don't know what to do. And of course, finances 
have been a, a struggle. So that is why uh, at CFC, beginning in January 2021, we're again offering our counseling discipleship training. And this is to help you become equipped to use God's word to encourage those in your sphere of influence. When someone comes and says, I do have fear, worry, and anxiety, you would be prepared from God's word to help them. Also, this is a way for you to proceed if you want to join our ministry as a certified counselor. We're in desperate need of those, so this training satisfies that. But one of the most common pieces of feedback we receive afterwards is, you know, I signed up in order to help others, but this is what I needed. It's really taught me how to counsel my own heart. So you can get more details on our website, but the fundamentals course starts January 8th and 9th. It is a weekend format, a Friday night and a Saturday over four weekends, one in January, one in February, one in March, one in April. And if you're one of the many who've taken our training before, we have a new advanced track that'll be during the March and the April weekends as well. So I encourage you to go online, get some information and sign up. We're going to be meeting in person. We're going to limit enrollment initially till we see how things play out so we can do it in person, but still space space out. So there may be some limitations. So I encourage you to go ahead and sign up quickly. Well, like I said, this sermon I've taught to myself. And as we, we look at this, I want us to recognize we're going to be in the book of James, James chapter one, if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn there. And James is talking about trials. And what I want us to leave with today as we approach Thanksgiving is James gives us instruction on how our present trials can actually result in present thanksgiving. Now, without a doubt, we, if you've studied the Bible, we know that we have eternal rewards coming, and those are true. As we persevere here, we will get rewards uh, in heaven. But I want us to recognize, I want to encourage us today that if we listen to James today, we can actually, on Thursday, when we gather around the Thanksgiving table, we can have joy and thanksgiving for the trials that we are currently in. And I think we could all be blessed by that. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at James chapter 1. We're going to look at the first 16 verses. Um, So we're going to read the whole thing so we get the flow, and then we'll break it down over the balance of our time. So... James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching wind and withers the grass and its flowers falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when his lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. 
Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So as we look at this, I want it, there's going to be three things I want us to recognize today. And the first one is actually in verse 1. James 1, James, a bondservant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. James is writing to fellow Christians, Jewish Christians, who have been persecuted and have had to flee Jerusalem. They have been dispersed. And he, this is believed to be about the time of Acts chapter 12 when Herod had started persecuting the Christians. In fact, if you read Acts chapter 12, another James, the, who is one of the apostles, the brother of John, had been executed. And it was about this time that this persecution was taking place. So, but what do we know about this James who is writing uh, the letter? Well, first of all, he is the oldest, believed to be the oldest half-brother of Jesus, he was probably with Jesus then, as it says in John 2, at the wedding in Cana and witnessed the first miracle. He was one of the people that the resurrected Christ appeared to during the 40 days after the resurrection. We see in Acts chapter 1 that immediately after the ascension, he started meeting with the apostles. He was one of the first people that Saul, who became Paul, spent time with after Paul had spent three years away after his conversion. Later, we see in Acts chapter 15, he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem at a time when a certain guy named Peter was still around. So he was the leader of the church at that point. And the history uh, writer Josephus said he was considered the most righteous of men by, by the Christians at that point. So that's a pretty good set of credentials. And so as he's getting ready to write this letter to fellow Christians to encourage them, he could have used those credentials. Have you ever gone to a place when someone was speaking and someone gets up and reads their bio to you before they stand up and speak? What do you think the purpose of those bios are? Sort of give credibility, right? That, okay, this is someone I want to listen to. Now, if you were a coach, football coach, going to a, a clinic on how to coach football and they stood up and said, hey, I want to introduce Mark to you. I want you to know he's one of the best accountants I've ever known. And he's really got some great uh, barbecue recipes. Well, that's great, but what does he know about coaching football? James could have started with, the, with his uh, worldly pedigree, so to speak, and it would have uh, given him credentials, I believe. But instead, what he chose to identify himself as James, a bondservant of God, and actually that verse is better translated slave. Greek word doulos is better translated slave. Now, I think some translators are reluctant to use the word slave because of the connotation in our culture. But James said, I am a slave. And in Greek times, maybe the slavery system wasn't quite as bad because it was possible to purchase your freedom. But until you did, you were property. You were owned by your master. And James chose to identify himself as I am James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And it's with that background, he says, this is who I am. And I'm coming with that identity to help encourage you. So what do we know about a slave? Well, we know a slave is about a master's work. Look at what Jesus says about a slave in Luke 7, 17. Which of you having a slave plowing or tending a sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately sit down and eat. On the contrary, will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you may eat and drink. 
the point being that even though the slave had done part of his job, he wasn't going to come in and eat and take care of himself until he had completed all the work. The slave is to be about the master's work until the job is completed. And Jesus says in Matthew, blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. A slave is to be about his master's work. And that's how James chose to identify himself. I am a slave of God and the Lord Jesus, and I am about the master's work. Now, here's the truth. Here's a true reality for all of us. If you have placed faith in Jesus Christ, you can take a pen in your Bible and above the word James, write your name. Because if you are a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is part of your identity. And what we need to do, and I think will help us turn trials into thanksgiving, is to recognize who I am in Christ. Who I am in Christ. See, before we place faith in Christ, we are lost, we are separated from God. But when we acknowledge I'm a sinner deserving of death, Christ is God's son. He lived a perfect life and died for me so that by faith in him, I may live again. Then we become identified with Christ. He becomes our representative before the father. And that has a lot of ramifications. Yes, before the father, we are justified. Now, a lot of people say that's just as if I never sinned. But the better part of that is it's just as if I always obeyed. We are a new creation. Before we were enslaved to sin, we couldn't overcome sin. We didn't even desire to overcome sin. But as a new creature, we desire to please God and we have the power to do it. We're adopted by the Father. We are chosen by Him. He is our Heavenly Father. But it's also true that we are a slave with a good, good master. But we need to remember that we are on a mission. And I think that's what... Be, remembering those things helps us to remember that we're on a mission. Think about your trial. So many times we're thinking about a different goal and a different mission. But if I remember, I'm a slave of Jesus on his mission, on a mission for him, which is to represent him correctly. We are ambassadors for Jesus. That means we represent him. And I don't know about you, if you've ever had a situation where you speak for a group or you speak for someone else, you're much more careful about that. In my role, sometimes I have to communicate for the elders as a team. And so, you know, I'm maybe crafting an email or something. And, you know, sometimes in the flesh, I might respond one way. I go, nope. At the end, it's going to say for the elders. So I have to do that backspace. Nope. Can't say that. Nope. Right. But we need to be that mindful of how we respond to our trials. We are representing Jesus. We're on his mission, which means we are to glorify him. That means we are to give a right opinion of Jesus. In this trial, someone can look at Tony and go, oh, that's what Jesus is like. We're also to be a manager. None of, nothing we have is ours. So it's like, okay, my time, my talent, my money, I have to use it for the owner and I'm gonna have to give an account for it. So I think, when I think of my trials, it's like, oh, wait a minute, I'm thinking I'm, I'm, I'm on my own mission here. Remembering I'm on a mission for Jesus helps. So let me ask you this. What about you? How do you identify yourself? When's the last time you introduced yourself to someone and you said, child of God, slave to the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, when we identify ourselves with our talents or our accomplishments, when suffering hits, it can be devastating. 
if I identify myself as a great runner and I blow out a knee, that trial becomes overwhelming because now I'm no longer what I was. Or if we identify with an accomplishment or a position, successful businessman, but then the business is sold or we retire, how do we identify? If we identify ourselves with or seek to be on our own mission, I am trying to get my own comfort, my own happiness, then when trials come, we can be devastated. I think remembering who we are will help us find joy in the trial. When we identify with our gifts or, you know, something we've done or someone we know, then a trial can be a real roadblock to our perceived happiness. So we have to remember who I am in Christ. And I love that just one verse, chapter, verse one. It's like, okay, that's what I need to remember. But something else we must recognize is we have to recognize the spiritual realities of the situation. All right. Whatever your trial is right now, we have to recognize the spiritual realities. Hebrews 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. See, what we need to know is I am in a spiritual battle. I'm in a spiritual battle. In your trial, it's not primarily your spouse or your teenager, or your parent, or your coworker, or your physical illness. Your primary battle is a spiritual one with flesh and blood. Let me show you. James 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, give you a little more Greek here. It's not because I'm trying to show off or make you Greek experts, but this will be important in a moment. The Greek word that's translated for trial there is pyrosmos, pyrosmos, okay, trial. Now, let's, for our purposes, let's define a trial as a painful circumstance allowed by God designed to transform my character and conduct. I do believe trials, God is sovereign, so God allows our trials for the purpose of transforming my character and conduct. And you'll see from verse two, it's not a question of if you have trials, but when, because you're going to have various trials. We just outlined some at the beginning. Maybe you identified with those. Maybe you're having your own trials right now. A lot of the, most of the trials we identified though, also fall on believers and unbelievers. Are unbelievers impacted by COVID? Yeah. Do unbelievers have loved ones die? Do they get sick? Sure. But we also know as Christ followers, we will have trials unique to being a Christ follower where we will be uh, persecuted for our faith, belittled. So we have various trials, but God is up to something. If you look at verse three and four, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. What God is doing in the trial is trying to conform your character and conduct to that of Jesus Christ. And he says, if we endure in the trial, if we come out on the other end, we will be more like Christ. In fact, the word for endurance there, hopomene in Greek, means to remain under the trial. To remain under the trial. So God is up to something good. However, Maybe it's just me, but when I'm in that trial, I'm tempted to do a lot of things other than to remain under the trial. So if we were playing a version of our own family feud, 
What are the four top reasons we as believers don't want to remain under the trial? What are, what are responses that we may do rather than remain under? Well, the first one is complain. Yeah, this is where everyone jumps up and down and says, good answer, good answer. Maybe we get the top points on the board. We complain. I, I don't know about you. I am tempted to complain every day. I mean, I, you know, I get here, I get out of the car, get almost to the door. And it's like, oh, forgot my mask. How many of you have done that? Huh, forgot my mask. You know, it's like, how long? How much longer? Or things have to change. You know, it's like, can't do that. We have to alter the seating here in this room. It's like, how much longer? Complain. Or bail, bail out. What's an example of that? Well, as I mentioned, the counseling ministry is a hard ministry. And so I will counsel people who are in circumstances that aren't of their own doing, or maybe they're in relational conflict. And each time we meet, you meet with them and it's hard. And some of them just don't wanna change. And that causes hardship on others. And so each week when you go into those situations, you know, it's so hard. And then maybe you'll get that phone call. Hello? Hey, yeah, this is, uh, so-and-so, I'm just telling you, we're, we're not coming back to counseling. Uh, it's not working. Now, on this end of the phone, if it's not a FaceTime, you know what I'm tempted to do? Yes! <laughs> but then I remember, who am I? I'm on a mission. And so then I have to say, don't stop. Let me help carry the burden. But I'm tempted to bail. Because look, hey, I tried and made myself available. I can look sort of self, you know, self-righteous there. You know, it's not that I wasn't available, but I am, you know, first opportunity they give me to bail where I can rationalize it, I'm tempted to take it. So I have to recognize when I'm tempted to bail or lash out, okay? Your trial may be relational. So you're tempted to lash out at the other party. Or maybe you, lash, you sin in response to their sin against you. You're in, a, you're in a hard situation and someone dares to try to encourage you. And you go, shut up, I don't want to hear that. All right, we can lash out. Or we could be tempted just to fold. It, nothing I can do, just going to sort of roll up, fetal position, whatever. Fold, just get passive. And so as you think of these things, it's like, okay, God allowed these circumstances. He wants me to represent him, to give a good opinion. Why does he keep tempting me to sin in these ways? And what I love about James is he frequently, if you read this letter of James, it seems like he's anticipating the question. Well, you jump down then to verse 13, where James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So what James is saying here is God is not tempted, nor does he tempt us to sin. The word tempted that's been underlined here is Pyrazo, does that seem familiar? Okay, if you're paying attention. Pyrazo is translated tempted here. We see here it's a verb before parasmas, trials, it's a noun, same root word. Came from the same root word here. So 
The question is, well, are we saying that it says God isn't tempted, he doesn't tempt anyone. Are we just being cute with language? You know, it's like, well, we can't say God's tempting us because he's God and that wouldn't be nice. So we're going to call it a trial. But really, it's the same word. Well, no, God is not tempted. What that means is God is not enticed by evil. There's nothing about evil that is attractive to him, nor does he entice you to sin, all right? He's not going to be down there and say, come on, I can't sin because I'm God, but you can. Pick the sinful choice. He's not doing that. That's not what God does. Nothing about sin attracts him or is attractive to him. Now, if you know the Bible, you may be thinking of another verse. Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one, and this is speaking about Jesus here, who has been tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. Oh, wait a minute. We just read in James that God cannot be tempted. And here we see Jesus was tempted in every way, but without sin. So what are we talking about? Are they consistent? Yes, they are. See, Jesus came and took on bodily form and lived in the world and was exposed to Satan. So he faced the outward temptations that we do. We know from the Bible that Satan appeared to him and tried to tempt him, tried to tempt him to use what his privileges and rank were in a way that didn't honor the Father. And Jesus lived in a world, and when we talk about the sinful world, I just want you to think about philosophies of of the world that are contrary to Scripture. Think of that group think that you hear about in a world where, you know, your gender is whatever you think it is. Sex with whoever you want is okay. Other things like that, which are contrary to Scripture. Jesus lived in that world and had the outward temptations, but it never enticed him. There was nothing about it that said, oh, wow, not even for a second. So let me give you an example here. If I was very hungry and my wife said, oh, okay, and she brought me a plate of Brussels sprouts and said, hey, you're hungry, eat some of these Brussels sprouts. Can I tell you, I'm not tempted, all right? Can we find, when will Brussels sprouts stop being the cool food, you know? There's nothing about it that is enticing to me. And so there is nothing about the world or Satan's allure that appealed to Jesus. And so Jesus was tempted in those ways, just as we were, but without sin. But with us, when we're in this world, not only do we have Satan in the world, but there's still remnants of our sinful flesh, that part of our thinking and habits that we are trying to put to death that we brought into our new life, our habits of thinking, our behavior. And so any part of your thinking that desires self or wants to be out from under the autonomy of God, that's the sinful flesh. And Satan is its biggest ally. It appeals to our sinful flesh. And so when we actually give in to temptation, our lusts, our evil desires, then it conceives sin. So there's some, whether or not you are, when you desire sin, whether it's for two seconds or not, that is sin. Sin is not based upon duration of time or the intensity of that sinful desire. So we need to be putting that to death. So I have a trial. 
Am I in a trial or am I desiring and lusting for sin? Same circumstances can be facing the same people. So the rea- what we have to remember is in our painful circumstance, whether or not it's a trial which will make me more like Jesus or will be an enticement to sin is based upon how I respond. Same circumstance, whether it's a trial that will conform me to the image of Jesus or be an enticement to sin is based upon my response. So if that's the case, then in those painful circumstances, I have to recognize God's wisdom and provision are available. Not only recognize they're available, I need to appropriate them for myself. In verse five again, I think this is another situation where James is anticipating a question. He was saying, consider it joy when you encounter various trials. A natural question is, well, what do I do in this trial? James says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. Doesn't matter what you've done before. If you ask for God's wisdom, he's going to give it generously to you. But he must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. God's word is sufficient for your trial. 2 Timothy 3.16 says the word of God is sufficient. It will tell you what's right. It'll tell you what's wrong. It'll tell you how to get right. It'll tell you how to stay right. 2 Peter chapter 1 says we have all we need for life and godliness. So we look at the word, but what we're prone to do is like... That seems hard. Wisdom here says I have to have a hard conversation with someone and they may not like me or they may lash out at me. So we, I, I don't want to do that. And if I can ask enough Christian friends who can rationalize a way out of it for me, then maybe I can justify it. But in the meantime, it's like I'm convicted. I know that's not right. I know what the Bible says, but that's hard. And I'm in that. I'm being tossed about by the wind. And you know what that person is experiencing in those cases? Anxiety, worry, fear. Many of the things that people are saying I need help with. So we need to ask God for his wisdom. He'll give it and then just trust it. Trust the word of God. Another passage I think that's helpful is in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 through 14. No temptation, and in this word, in this case, temptation is talking about that outward enticement. The world, Satan, the hooks, the bait they're trying to deploy on you has overtaken you, but such is common to mankind, and God is faithful, so he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Great promises here. First of all, he says, the trial you are in is not uncommon. Now, have you ever said... When someone's tried to encourage you, yeah, but you don't know what it's like. Or has anyone ever said that to you, right? You try to help them, they go, well, you don't know what it's like. Well, what this says is your trial, your current circumstances are not uncommon. It doesn't mean it's universal. No, not everyone, but it's not uncommon. Then it says God is faithful. He will provide a way of escape. That means in the trial, there will be a way for you to honor God in it. Sin will never be the only option. But you have to persevere, endure in the trial. It doesn't say the trial is going to be taken away. God's going to be faithful and provide a way for you to withstand the trial. Now, have you ever thought 
as we look at this verse, I want to encourage you with this verse. Have you ever known someone who's going through a lot, a lot of trials, and you look at them and their Christ-like character and you go, wow, I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could. Well, you know why? It wasn't your trial. This says, in your trial, God is faithful. So if you're in a trial, you can be encouraged by the fact that it is your trial. God knows you better than yourselves and will not tempt you beyond what you are able. He is like the perfect basketball coach. One of the most influential men in my lives was my high school basketball coach. But I can tell you, when it came to conditioning and drills, he drove us hard. And if, if it had been one of those where just the team was participating, we'd have quit a long time ago, right? But he kept pushing. He knew what we needed to become better. God knows what trials we can withstand to become more like Christ on the other side. We can trust him. He will give us wisdom. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can please him in the trial. But as we looked at this verse, and if you have it there, you know, right here, oop, back up. No temptations overtake you, but such is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape so you will be able to endure it. There are great truths about your trial and about God and promises of God, but there's really no command there, have you noticed? There's nothing there that says, and you shall do this or not do that. But then you get the therefore in verse 14, right? Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. See, Paul knows you're in a trial. God is trying to make you more like Christ. He's going to provide a way of escape and the power of the Holy Spirit so you can do that. But Paul says you're going to be tempted to run to your idol. Don't do that. You're going to want ease of life. You're going to want comfort. You're going to want escape. And so the way you get that may be alcohol. It may be food. It may be bailing on a difficult marriage. Flee from idolatry. God's faithful. Don't flee to your idol. Don't make one of those bad trades that Doug frequently talks about. We have to be careful of that. And so that, going back to that spiritual battle again, primarily between the ears. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, Therefore we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. When we are in this trial, when we are in the difficult circumstances, we have to be careful of our thinking. And if we're thinking anything that is contrary to the Scripture, we have to destroy that thought and we have to replace it with the truth of Scripture. Destroy one, take the other one captive. See, a thought is something that you may dwell on for weeks. And the more you fondle that thought, the more it's going to filter and factor into what you do, what you say, and we have to destroy it. Let me give you some practical examples in case these are thoughts you're thinking about, you're thinking of during these trials. I can't do this, or I can't do this anymore. And maybe you said that, I just, I just can't do this anymore. Well, if the, this is honoring and pleasing God, yes, you can. I can't is a lie from the pit of hell, right? And maybe you don't want to, but I can't is a lie. Or how about this? God is not good. If God was good, I wouldn't be going through this trial or maybe better yet, another one, my loved one wouldn't be going through this trial. 
God's not good. We need to destroy that. God sent his only son to die for us so that we would be saved from the penalty of sin. We will have the power over sin and one day we will not even be in the presence of sin. And he in the meantime is making us more like Christ. God is good. Think relationally. Sometimes this, these thinkings creep into and get Christianized, all right? In marriage, in, when you have difficult marriage, concepts of his needs, her needs. In other words, my spouse has to be a certain way for me to be happy. If he doesn't change or she doesn't change, I can't be happy, nor do I have to fulfill my role as a spouse. And if I get enough other people to agree with me on that, well, then I'm right. We always have to hold this up to the scripture. Don't forgive. Don't forgive. You'll be a doormat. You need to get revenge. It's not what the scripture says. We need to take those thoughts captive. So we need to remember the front line of the battle in your trial is a spiritual one between God and his word and Satan and the worldly philosophies. And we need to be putting our sinful flesh to death. So we have to, for me... Recognizing the spiritual battle actually helps me. Sometimes when things get hard, I just want to like give up. But when I remember I'm in a spiritual battle, that there's an enemy out there sort of poking me in the chest, I don't know, it just makes me want to bow up sometimes. Now, I got to do it in the power of, the, of God, Holy Spirit within me. But if we remember there is an enemy out there, then that sort of motivates me to reject passivity and be more proactive in the trial. And I'm encouraged by this. We're in a spiritual battle in a war that's already been won. Go to the back of the Bible. We win. We've already won. Satan was defeated at the cross. So if I recognize who I am in Christ and that I'm on a mission in a spiritual battle and I take the resources God gives me, then I think totally different about my circumstances. But we do have to recognize sometimes that Sometimes a trial doesn't seem to have an end. We don't know when it's going to end, right? When's COVID going to end? When, when's all these, when are we going to go back to normal? We don't know. We don't know. When is your undiagnosed condition going to be diagnosed? You don't know. But I want to encourage you with this then. We can recognize the rewards of perseverance. And in this section, I want us to recognize there is a present reward. There's a present joy available to you today. Not just, well, if I persevere through this and there's going to be some carrot years and years from now or in eternity, whenever that is. I'm talking about present rewards right now. Those rewards in eternity are absolute. I'm not minimizing that. That could be a whole sermon series. So look at James 1.12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Blessed. If you persevere in the trial, you have divinely bestowed favor. The hand of God will bestow favor on you. That's an encouragement. And he says, you will receive the crown of life. By crown, I want you to think of that wreath, that garland that victors receive when they run, win the race. And this passage actually, it says crown of life is better translated the crown, which is life. The crown, which is life. Jesus defined life this way. 
And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you served. When we receive life, we receive the knowledge. We know Jesus. I know about Abraham Lincoln. I don't know Abraham Lincoln. We go beyond knowing about Jesus. We know him. We can know him today in the trials. Just in the past 10 days, I've had close friends, both of them ladies, crying tears of joy about their trials because of what they have experienced in the trial from Jesus. And they would not trade it at all. And their trials weren't over, but they were so joyful in it because they know Jesus. So if that is the case, then if that's true, going back to verse two doesn't seem as far-fetched. Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials. I think sometimes we read that and go, yeah, that, yeah, right. Count it joy in this trial. That seems, that's church talk. But if I can know Jesus and then I know what God is up to, this makes sense. In the trial, he is working to make me more like Jesus, conforming me to the image of God. He's given me that endurance. If I endure in this trial, I'll be able to endure in the next trial and I become more like him. So think about this. This trial is making me more like Jesus Christ. Is that a good reward? I know you're masked, but is becoming more like Jesus a good reward? Is it better than a raise? You believe that? So this trial is making more like Jesus. We all know in our, in our own flesh, we quit. We'd be the basketball team that says, I'm not running another suicide drill, right? We would quit. So in reality, this doesn't happen. But if there was a scale of zero to 100 of Christ's likeness and you were a 50, and let's face it, that's generous, all right? But going through this trial would give you an 80. Would you elect to go through it? Yeah, just don't answer too quickly. We could be that, like that student who has a C and could take extra credit and get a B and go, no, I'm good with a C. But becoming, God knows becoming more like Jesus is a reward. And in that, in that trial, today in the trial, if you are persevering, you are becoming more like Jesus. You are becoming more like Jesus that you are coming to know more. You know him, you fall in love with him. You realize I'm becoming more like him. That should give us unbelievable joy. In fact, I think this is the best way to define joy. A supernatural delight. And I say supernatural delight because it's come from the Spirit. This is only for born-again believers. A supernatural delight in the person of God, the purposes of God, and the people of God. Matt and the band are going to come up now. uh, And while they do... I still like to have your attention because I want to unpack that. When we talk about having the joy of Jesus, we're not talking about Jesus's dispensation toward us, although it does give him joy. We're talking about the same joy Jesus has, we can have. Is, do you believe Jesus is joyful? I'm getting some head nods, but it's a, Do you believe he was joyful for the 33 years he walked the earth? Yes, he was very joyful. In fact, when, oh, TV's gone. Okay, 
He had joy in the person of God, God the Father. It says that he obeyed the Father and it gave him joy. He said he wanted us to obey his commandments so that the joy he had would be in us. That supernatural delight. Then it says in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Knowing God's purpose, he had great joy. Think of the trial. What could God be doing using you in the lives of others? There's a purpose. And then finally, it says the joy in the people of God, the one and others. It says that when one lost person comes to know the Lord in heaven, there is a great rejoicing for that one more so than 99 self-righteous people. In the trial right now, let's remember your identity, you're in a battle, but then recognize in the trial, you're becoming more like Christ and having that supernatural delight in the person of God, the purposes of God, and the people of God. So we're gonna sing, if you would stand with me now, Matt, the band's gonna lead us, and I want you to recognize this reality. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of Jesus in you is your strength. But you have to remember, this is a sermon, a message. You're going to have to preach to yourself every day because tomorrow there could be a new trial and you have to remind yourself of that. But the joy of the Lord is our strength.